0: Hi, my name is Bruce Perram. Welcome to my podcast series Trauma from the Frontline. In this series, we'll be interviewing a wide range of people that work in the frontline industries who'll be sharing their professional and personal thoughts and ideas about working in the field and some of the challenges that they all confront. Hi, my name is Bruce Perram. Welcome to Trauma from the Frontline. Today my guest is Greg Morton. Greg started his career in adult corrections at a maximum security facility in the US as an academic counsellor and then served as that prison staff training coordinator for 11 years. He worked as a department-level new employee and an annual in-service instructor until he was selected to be the department's leadership program manager. Greg has spoken at numerous conferences and training sessions, has instructed at the university and community college level, and has taught parenting classes for prison inmates. He holds a master's degree in industrial organizational psychology, concentrating on the personal and professional consequences of work-related trauma and chronic stress. So welcome to you, Greg. And um, as often, uh, it's morning here and it's afternoon for you. So we're in different spheres of of the, of the clock. Uh, how are you going? And I'd be really interested if you could share a little bit about One, what attracted you to corrections work and some of those, your reactions to some of those early years?
1: Um, Well, thank you, Bruce, very much. The first thing that got me interested in the profession was when I was, I was a psych major in college, figuring that I would end up um, doing some kind of government human service work. And in a a class I had, I read, um, the Crime of Punishment by Dr. Carl Menninger. And he talked about treatment programs and progressive um, uh, diagnostic work in in corrections in prisons. And that got me interested. I did an um, uh, internship at the local county jail. Um, I was all excited about getting a master's degree in criminology, got uh, signed up for a uh, Um, two-year master's program, lasted about five weeks in that program and decided that I wanted to work with real people and not just read books. Came back home, got a job in the juvenile system, uh, juvenile facility, uh, shifted over into juvenile training. Um, And from there, I got a job at the state pen um, in in, uh, the maximum security facility in the state that I worked in. Um, I was an academic counselor and did um, uh, GED testing. Um, we that we did we had our own diagnostic center there. And then, as it turned out, a gentleman that I had worked with on that um, juvenile training project um, joined the executive staff at the pen, and he said, "Well, I want you to do corrections. I want you to be our training coordinator." Well, I I laughed the first time that he said that because I didn't I really didn't know much about the profession other than what I'd read in textbooks, been there a year. Um, but 11 years later, I was still the um, training coordinator for the state pen. Uh, I developed whatever necessary skills, I, whatever skills I needed to be able to, to perform that on my own. My, the first half, I had a lieutenant that worked for me. Um, but then uh, after that, I, I performed on my own. And moved to the central office, did staff training, leadership development, was this, the training director for the state um, when I retired. Then I, co- I asked one of our contract agencies, I was interested in their cognitive programs with offenders. And I said, I don't want to take anybody's full-time job. And besides that, I'm retired. I don't even know if I can work for you. But they hired me as a part-time contractor to do a parenting program at uh, State Pen, volunteer parenting program, volunteer attendance, that is, uh, with inmates at the State Pen. Same floor that I would worked on when I was doing GED tests. While I was there, a pretty, what I want to say, locally famous sergeant who had survived a suicide attempt and was very um, – Public about that uh, and and used that, it used his personal story to um, engage people in wellness uh, conversations. He started circulating Desert Waters um, Correctional Oasis, their monthly uh, newsletter. And the first time I read the, f- the phrase, the two word term, corrections fatigue, in a Desert Waters document the whole career, the whole profession made sense to me. I had worked with new employees who were excited and, you you know, glad to have the job, going to contribute to public safety, change people's lives. And then they would come back for their annual training a year later and two years later and five years later and so on. And they had turned into bucket heads. And I wondered, what the heck happened to you guys? Well, the phrase corrections fatigue explained what happened. And from there, I signed up with Desert Waters. I've done training for them um, around the, the country in the U.S., every four corners of the U.S. And then, of course, with you, Bruce, and Australia and a couple other countries as well. So long story, um, started with being interested in doing something to improve the profession and look here we are
0: the, Greg really interested in in when did you first start to um, recognize that it, you know the, the training that you were delivering and then starting to see hang on this is a, a lot worse you know these officers as you said are coming back you know bucket heads after you know 2 to 5 years of doing this work what sense were you starting to make of that at that time you know what were you seeing in the officers that came to training well
1: i i, I thought it was just uh, we we put together stress management classes i just thought it was stress management that that um you know, we would just do research on stress and provide um, ideas uh, to people about how to manage their stress, and, and that would take care of it. Um, and then um, that wasn't enough, and we put together uh, – we we, a group of us designed a class that we called Creating a Healthy Working Environment, um, it, which was mainly a communications class. We thought maybe it's just uh, commu- their communication issues. Um, and then we hired a, a contractor who did a three day, uh, put together a three day video program for us on team building. And, <laughs> you know, all of those had little bitty, um, if that's the right term, uh, successes, but it, it, they, it wasn't enough. It, I mean, it just obviously wasn't enough. I mean, we had, you know, we still had suicides. We still had domestic violence cases. Um, there were, it, We were doing what we thought needed to be done, but it just obviously wasn't enough.
0: So it, it, uh, that's a really interesting point, Greg. Um, at, at what point did you start to go, oh, hang on a minute, the, the issues here are deeper, than um you know people not being able to manage their stress i mean when did that start to open well, it, up it, for it, you it,
1: it it really was when i connected with desert waters when cat katarina is the dr spinaris is the one who what she, what she did the way I, I explain her work when i do training is that she did you know she doesn't have a she didn't have a corrections background she had a trauma therapy background. And so she just applied trauma therapy to the to the corrections profession, the people that she was seeing in in her therapy session. She just provided trauma therapy and it fit. And um, it until I, you know, none of us had any of that background. Uh, but that's what it was. That was that was the breakthrough, uh, as far as I was concerned, and and continues to be.
0: So, so that was that sort of exposure to Katerina's work and her thinking that then opened up, I guess, other doors for you to look back on your own experiences and go, okay, we we were trying to provide what often officers uh, will will say openly ticker box training. Um, into a yep. situation that, and I mean this in a nice way, that we didn't understand. You know what, what was going on? The, you know what's, <laughs> yes, <laughs> tick a box training.
1: It was that was you know it did the best we could, but it, it it I have to own the fact that it was even worse than that, because what we didn't realize is how much. Indirect trauma. We were intentionally uh, a, um, applying or assigning, oh, making our staff sit through just in training. That so so in terms of awareness. What I realized was that looking back on my early um, training career, when I was at the state pen, I. I thought then my job was to pre-traumatize new employees, to provide, to give them indirect trauma experiences intentionally for the purpose of obviously creating vigilance and safety and so on. But, you know, I've heard you on your, on your various um, uh, episodes with other people ask the question, you know, why do we keep doing this? Why do we keep doing this? Well, because we, we thought it was the right thing to do. We thought we were supposed to be preparing people. We thought we were preparing people, and in a way we were. But in doing so, we were traumatizing them while while we were preparing them. We were introducing trauma into their lives, indirect trauma, granted, uh, in, into their lives as if it were normal without providing any... Um, any way to respond to it. It just was, obviously, it'll make you tough and that's what we need.
0: Okay, so so yes, I was gonna say, tell me more, um, it, it, in preparing them for the work, uh, like, you know, you know you're know, you gonna be assaulted, you're gonna be spat at, you're gonna potentially mm-hmm. be, you know, you, mm-hmm. you, you, less so here, but I know in America, you could be killed. Um, mm-hmm. So you'd be educating them about these are all the things that are going to happen to you potentially, but you just kind of this is how you' need to manage it. Was that what you're saying? It, uh, yeah, y- yes, and it wasn't even
1: that sophisticated
0: right it
1: was it was um, th- th- we didn't recognize the difference between vigilance and hypervigilance. I guess is, is, is one way to think of it. And it's important. There's no question that it's important to prepare staff uh, in any number of different ways um, to, to go into that setting. But, but it's what I personally believe have, have since learned is that it's also important, just as important to, to provide information to help people get out of that um, excessive vigilance state when they're not at work. Mm. We, we had, we had the old, there was this, the old uh, saying, uh, leave it at the gate, but that's, that was it. That was the entirety of the advice that was given. And was, there was nothing about how it happens, why it happens, what you need to do, um, other than, you know, go to a tavern at 8 o'clock in the morning when the graveyard shift gets off. You know, that, that, was, that was the only advice there. Um, but the, the increases in um, neuroscience and brain science around trauma have completely changed that. And the fact that we I – would, I would guess still in most training academies – there are indirect, pre-traumatizing experiences intentionally designed in, and that's fine. You have to prepare people, but then what tools do you give them to set that aside if and – or not if, when they need to?
0: And, and you know, that's the crux of the, the, the issue, isn't it? You want to attract people to the profession because we need um, correction officers. We need first responders. Um so it's almost like we're here it's probably the same where you are so it's advertised as appealing and you'll make a difference and um you know uh, there's actually a recent ad here where it talks about and as officers go home they'll feel a sense of hope and pride in their day's work um, now when What you said, I 100% agree with, you know, one of the biggest issues for officers is that how do you transition out of the the prison into your um, home life? I talk to officers all the time that have enormous issues with that um, and don't know what's happening to them and have family members go, you just, you're you're off your face, you know. Um, And yet, so how, how do we pick up all of that but still make it a well yeah okay it's a really good career to do i i don't have the answer but really interested in your thoughts about that that dilemma of we need to prepare them but we want them to do this job but we need to try and help them not get ptsd well i i really liked
1: phrasing that tim peck used um when you interviewed him and several times he said make it visible and and that really it sums it up to me for the for the employee for the family um, denial kills people denial is uh, is one step towards uh, you know not showing up <laughs> the next day um, and we need to be way past that we we need to be clear about the potential consequences frequent consequences. That are built into into trauma work, and then what do we do about it? And there, I've got a couple ideas about that. Once we get to that part of the conversation, but um, be visible. The start is to be visible, visible about it, and not pretend that it's not there. Did let me let me let me add yeah. one more thing, and that, and that is that when I do training for desert waters. Um, I, I'm just, just to agree with you, I'd say if you don't think you have corrections fatigue, go home and ask your family. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you th- if you're in denial about it, then ask your family, and hopefully they'll tell you. They'll answer honestly because they will be the ones that know.
0: Now, I, I was going to ask uh, you know, as as a professional, um, you know, working within in the system, um, mm-hmm. did did you feel in a way that um. Well, well, how would you put it, that the influences of the culture within the organisation kind of entrapped you as a trainer, that because um, I'm, I'm just really aware of how when you work within these systems, how, um, not a negative comment, but just how powerful they are in how everybody thinks. I, I don't know. I'd just be interested in your comments about, you know, if you had a gone to your senior and said, I, I don't know this training's really hitting the mark, um what would they have said? Um, I
1: actually had seniors tell me that. And I, so i was I was pretty lucky as far as that went. Um, and a, a part of it came from my academic background, um, back to um, uh, Carl Menninger. and and i I really did want to see the profession, um, evolve, I guess you would say, but so I didn't have any problem um, causing us at, when I was training director. I think that might be the right way to put it to to try to do uh, more progressive things in the training world. But like I said, what I didn't realize is what <laughs> what we what we hadn't taken out or we, what we hadn't countered. Um, and it still wasn't, and what we what we did still still wasn't enough. We I, I had a, a, a executive um, cancel a year's worth of training because he wanted us to do he wanted us to develop different offender management strategies, and and we did that. We took that year off. We developed that material. Uh, really really proud of that material. Um, And then I came to learn that what happens in the four walls of the training classroom may or may not carry over onto the job. And so um, a piece of advice I'd give for anybody listening is, especially for a 24-7 operation, uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, whoever your supervisors are, your first-line supervisors – on evening shift and night shift and weekends, that's where the culture of your organization is, is made. Those are the folks that absolutely need to buy into anything that is, is going to be different. If you know, up to and including wellness and trauma response, that's where the uh, events are going to happen. And the supervisor is the one there that's going to, going to have to have answers and, and be the one that the employees, uh, uh, talk to and, and work their processes through.
0: So, and, and what's your, been your direct experience of that in terms of like in in way Code Blue raises the issues of what a lot of officers, a lot of officers said to me that they didn't feel they could have those trauma conversations, you know, that if they were feeling traumatized by an event they didn't feel that generally, not everyone, but generally their seniors weren't weren't wanting to have those sorts of conversations. Um, was that been your experience in your work or has it been a bit different? Uh, yeah,
1: yes. Now, not so much anymore, and so this rolls back the clock maybe even five to ten years, but I remember talking to a, a prison warden, a superintendent, and he said, the way he put it was when he was a captain, the the um, uh, critical incident in uh, uh, response in that organization was called uh, employee staff support. And um, when they had a critical incident, after it was over with, he would invite the people that were involved, the officers that were involved, uh, to see ESS, but he would always phrase it negatively. He would say, nobody needs to see ESS, do they? Mm. And you know, and, and, and so of course that's what your captain is saying. So obviously nobody's going to raise their hand, but then he could always say, Oh yeah, I, I, I invited them to, uh, to participate. So that was his awareness of how, um, the, uh, like, like I said, that those, those first line supervisors really influence the policy. And if, if I mean, at this point in time, the um, the the research is pretty darn clear that ongoing support uh, for staff after critical incidents, not just one time, the research is also pretty clear that one time interventions aren't aren't satisfactory and maybe even be damaging, but ongoing. Um, debriefing support, critical incident support really does make a difference uh, for people, how they handle the, the stress and trauma after the fact. Um, and that's, that's got to be with the, uh, the supervisor. I mean, it just uh, uh, how, I'm sorry, I'm rambling on here, Bruce, but the way I would put it is I would put it in as a required um, part of the supervisor interview. The interview you have to that you have to go through in order to be promoted to a supervisor, sergeant, lieutenant, captain. I would have that be a question, and you have to you you have to get it right. You have to be able to uh, promote that in order to be a supervisor.
0: Oh, Greg, I absolutely so agree, and you know you've worked within the system. Um, I haven't worked in the system in that way, but mm-hmm. um, you know, I, there's one of many areas, and I think that's a major one. Um, in in to be uh, you know a leader or a supervisor, you know you need to be able to have those conversations with your staff and to be able to support them, and hear them and uh, and know what to do in terms of how to to link them into to services and it, it just it, it, we struggle with it here we really do and it's hit and miss and too many officers tell me that to, to um, they don't get that. The other point, uh, which I'll get you to expand on, is the ongoing of, you know, and I'd have to say here generically, not bad at single incident response, um, tracking officers over time in terms of, if I said to anybody, well, how many critical incidents has that officer had in the last couple of years? People wouldn't know. They might say, well, a few, a couple, or, you know, there's really no... Um, um, well, I might be wrong, but from what I see, there's no real ongoing um, uh, services within that here. Um, Just more comments on that in terms of your own experience of seeing facilities that provide or, one, see trauma visibly. I think that's a huge – recognise that this work Mm -hmm. will Mm -hmm. traumatise you and and you need to be – Prepared for that, but just some comments around your thoughts of, of of those issues.
1: the 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 first thing I think of is um, is are your interviews with Neil O'Rourke, and and the way he put it was, well, when one, one thing happens, then it's over with, and you pick up and you go on to the next thing, and that is absolutely the case. Um, in, in fact, if I were to critique what I my my own comments a few minutes ago about supervisors need to be on board for that. there are so many gray areas and there are so many uh so, so much difference um in uh in stress and trauma response between individuals it it's it, it can't be easy it can't be easy acknowledging that or not acknowledging it, it can't be easy recognizing it um especially when You know, people don't want to display that that uh, what feels like a weakness. Uh, No, I'm good. I want to get. I'll I'll get over it. No, I'm good. Uh, No, I'm good. Um, The uh, the chat the the best leadership presentation I ever heard was of an agency director who included his own. Um, driving under the influence conviction it, as an example of um, the consequences of the profession. And he, he was he was, I might even say, bold about it. And that's the part that the supervisor, um, that's that's the first place that the ice gets broken is for the supervisor to recognize, uh, him or for himself or herself. Um, and again, you know, back to Desert Waters, when we do instructor training, that's one of the things we tell instructors in the agencies. You'll be paying attention to your audience of 20, 25, 30 staff presenting this material, but you'll be processing it for yourself all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Because this is this is what's happened to you, and maybe happened to you more than it has uh, the other people in the room, and that's why you volunteered to be an instructor. So, it is uh, um, uh, an ongoing process. So, yeah. support, supports are necessary all the way around.
0: Yeah, and and um, Greg, you know, you put that brilliantly. It it, it is the you know to really be to you know, work with people around their own trauma, you need to be connected to your own, you know, your own personal experience. And that's my sense, you know, that a, a lot of officers at that sort of 15, you know, 15 plus years where they maybe are starting to move up the ranks a bit, their whole experience has never been one of connecting with their own fatigue or their own PTSD. They've never had to do it or they've never been in a context where it's been required so it doesn't surprise me that having those sorts of conversations, uh, they're not easy. They're not easy as a counsellor to have them. But that, um, you know, f- for a lot of those people in those positions, they do flick the EAP card or go and ring them, and get some free counselling or that they're conversations that are, are just too hard to have. And yet, uh, you know, I, I can talk about that, but no one ever really takes that up as you know, kind of it's just how it is, you know so I'm really interested in your experiences when you start to connect with supervisors at that or let's just talk about your own trauma um, what, what how have you found that shift over the last you know five to ten years
1: yeah a good good question um, well I, I can give you a, a, a couple of examples um, and they're they're good examples um, we have a at Desert Waters, one of our master trainers, is a a PhD warden. And she hit upon the idea when she was still working, don't wait for the employee to call EAP. If you're the supervisor, you call EAP. You say, these are the issues that I have with an employee. These are the things I see. What advice do you have for me as the supervisor Um, you know, potentially it leverages a conversation between you and the employee to, to encourage um, uh, uh, further therapy if that's needed. But at the very least, the supervisor then is learning from a professional how to respond. And that's, that's, that was brilliant. I don't, I've never heard that before. You know, have a relationship with your EAP provider as a supervisor to advise you on how to work with the people that that, um, that excuse me that report to you, uh, that's huge. Um, a second example um, that I think of is um, is that the the awareness comes to us in surprising ways. It was a captain in a training program, instructor training program a very sharp guy, very, very sharp guy, award-winning in his in his uh, organization. And he told the story about being off-duty, out of uniform, and his awareness moment was when he went to get gas at a gas station and he thought he'd go in and get himself a soda or something like that afterwards, and he walked up to the door of the mini-mart and he just stood there and looked in. And an older gentleman, a customer, came up behind him and said, is everything okay? And he this captain didn't even realize what he was doing. But he was off completely he was off duty, completely off duty, and he was examining the environment that he was gonna walk into, which was just a mini mart at a at a gas station to get himself a soda. He you know, he had he, had, he was carrying his on duty behavior um uh, off duty, and it wasn't until um, you know <laughs> this this other gentleman looked over his shoulder and said, "Is everything okay?" That he even realized what he was doing, and and so that that uh, once again, Tim Peck, make it visible. Is the more we talk about, it, the more Bruce, the more you do these podcasts, the more th- the work gets done. The more people are given the opportunity to recognize. Um, to make visible um, what's happening. It, it, it is much more so than it ever was before. Um, but it's the future of the profession. I'm absolutely convinced of it. It's the p- future of the profession. And, and so I'll say one last thing and then be quiet for a second. And that is if, if anybody is – those who are listening to this podcast and who are early in their career – if you want to be promoted, I would advise you this is the train to get on. This is the, um, the, the employee wellness and trauma responsiveness is the part of the business that um, will make or break the future. That's, if you want to be promoted, be an expert in that. That's my personal opinion.
0: Well, I think it's great advice and uh, that's my hope, you know, that the, the, the system, I, I think you're, you're much further down the track in the US than we are here, um, but, you know, to, to get some recognition around the importance of that. Just some comments, you know, like to be honest, I, I've had very little interest here um, in the correction fatigue training and, you know, almost some rude responses back in terms of, um, you know, my staff don't need it. Um, I actually, you know, when I sent out a pack to a a prison, it wasn't here in Victoria, it was an interstate prison, they sent me back the pack that I'd sent out with the information with a yellow sticker on it, not anybody who put their name to it, um, my staff don't need this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So, I, 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 you know, and, and it's hard, you know, not to take it personally in a way. I, and I think, you know, the work that you do, that what Katarina's done, you know, the, the picking up the issues of, of PTSD, of people can get uh, executed doing this work and and all of that. Um, and yet, you know, I can't get any interest here in, in, in that sort of training. Now, while I said I take it personally, I don't take it personally as such. I take it as a reflection of, well, there's no urgency in our system here to really be concerned about the mental health of people who do this work. Uh, everyone will say they are. Um, and oh yeah, that's all we think about and that's all, all we do and we're doing this and we're doing that. But it's getting to, but this is how it's affecting people's lives. And 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 so a lot of those issues we're talking about, that going home, that being able to be in a family, being able to deal with the, the trauma memories, and, um, uh, you know, th- th- that's what we need to be focusing on. And so I'm rambling a bit now, but I'd be really in- interested in your comments about... I can remember Katarina saying when she started this work, no-one wanted to know, everybody mm-hmm. was an- mm-hmm. anxious about all it's going to do is up the work cover claims, that there was great resistance uh, to to what she was doing at Desert Waters. Really interested in your comments of how that um, has changed over the last 20 years, you know, whether you are now working with a lot more responsive, you know, um, correctional facilities.
1: Well, at the, one of the one of the things that I have recognized in myself is that I just don't apologize about it anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it, it's the if if somebody's going to send me back a packet with a yellow sticky note on it saying my staff don't need this, that is, like I said before, that's just an example of denial that's going to cause somebody to lose their life or family or career or whatever. Anyway, that's 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 just a denial at its worst, and yes, it it still exists. There's no doubt about it. I worked with I don't know how many um, instructors, uh, uh, fatigue to fulfillment instructors, and and not all of them were receptive. You know, there were some who uh, who just said, "No, this is uh, I can't do this. This is just going to make um, it's going to enable people to." uh to take it easy on the job it's going to be, enable people to blame the profession for their own problems well okay i i get that um, i don't know i, it, I i'm not, i'm not sure i have, have a good answer to your to your question or a good response other than just to say we just gotta keep at it and i'm sorry about that Um, Bruce, it's, it isn't you personally, of course, it's says way more about them than it ever does about you because they just haven't recognized it yet.
0: Yes. Yeah. And I guess, as you said, you know, you just have to keep, you know, plugging away at it. And, um, uh, and, you know, as I often talk to people, it's when you sit with people in a counseling context, you know, you, you do see it as it is. And, uh, I very much see as it is. But mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so just some thoughts, Greg, uh, with it. But I, I know that in our, our um, email exchange, you raised a couple of issues that you wanted to talk about. Um, is there, you know, a topic that we haven't covered that, that you know, you'd be keen to, to bring up?
1: <laughs> um, you, you run the risk of me clicking into trainer mode and going on for you know, two hours on a particular topic. When you when you ask that, Bruce, that I, I'll I'll just do two things, although they're two big things: the um, the neuroscience of trauma, and the I did, what did I just read yesterday? There are now one million functional MRI um studies that have been done on brain um, activity uh, in in trauma and stress. It, I mean it's it, the the amount of research that's being done on this subject um, uh, about how the brain functions in the cases of challenges and difficulties is just immense. And I would urge agencies, to investigate that research, if I were still a state training director, if I were still a training director and had influence over, over curriculum, I would, I would have some kind of brief, doesn't have to be extensive, but some kind of brief brain science um, as a prerequisite for all force skills training, that the, the recognition of how the brain works in the cases of trauma um, or, or threat, excuse me, threat, there are two small almond-sized clusters of neurons right in the middle of our brain called the amygdala, one in each one in each hemisphere. They are the nine one one center, the smoke detection center, and the nine one one center and the nine one one response for threat. And if those get triggered. Then they send a signal through uh, as a result of um, something you see, hear, smell, taste, touch. It, it, when those get triggered, they send a threat response to your prefrontal cortex right behind your brain, or right, right behind your forehead, excuse me, right behind your forehead. And the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex essentially go into a arm wrestling match as to whether you're going to respond to the threat or you're going to think about the threat and, de- and decide whether it really is a threat or not. Um, that happens, that neurological event happens in the correctional environment constantly. And you know, the, 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 the phrase I use is um, nothing happened but it could have. And nothing happened but it could have is actually a good day. But what that means is that your threat monitor and your prefrontal cortex are talking to each other, are arm wrestling, playing tug of war, constantly trying to determine whether this is a- an actual threat or not. And the 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 brain plasticity notion, um, neurons that fire together, wire together, you know, the more it happens, the more it's likely to happen, and the more that... Um, and this is why my comment about pre-traumatizing new employees, uh, I think, has some validity. If, if we start doing, if we start, um, what would be the right word, emphasizing, reinforcing that kind of um, threat uh, awareness that early in a person's career without giving them some way to manage it, that is, um, uh, that's that's us making the problem worse, um, because what it means is that the th- the threat, um, the uh, excuse me, the arm wrestling, the tug of war between the, the threat sensor and the executive part of the brain is gonna is going to uh, favor the, the threat sensor, um, just because we're over overwhelming it with that information.
0: Mm. And, and um, you know, often when, you know, well, most of the time when I talk to officers, correction officers or police officers, they'll have no idea of that. They'll actually sit there and say, I don't know what the F is wrong. And it, it, it's it's almost like, you know, and often kind of say, so, this is going to sound like a bit of gobble gock, um, but you know, and I, I look at that and I think, how can you go through this training and and not know how the brain works? <laughs> like, yeah, you know, how how do you, how can you do this work and you you don't know how your brain works or how can, how it responds can, can, to trauma? Can I
1: can I can I make up a story here? Yeah, of course. So 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 uh, you're a correctional officer, and you're working in the dining room. It's meal time, which means you're outnumbered somewhere in the fifty to one range, if not more than that. And you've got um, uh, an offender, you got an inmate who absolutely won't do what you want him to do, whatever it might happen to be. Sit at this table, pick up your tray, you're done. Whatever. And you get up and you have this huge argument right in the middle of the uh, um, in the dining room. Like I said, where you're outnumbered fifty to one. Well, that's that's a risky event. That is that is the kind of event that's a threat event. There's no doubt about that. Well, you talk him out of it, you talk him down, He gets, goes back and sits where you want him to sit, whatever it might happen to be. Um, and then that's the end of that. Just like Neil O'Rourke said, you just go on to the next thing. Nothing happened, but mm. it could have. Well, but something happened, you know, what happened neurologically for you during all of that? Well, a lot of things happened for you neurologically during all of that. The other, the threat sensor in your brain was just, was, was going crazy. And um you were having to monitor and manage your uh um your behaviors, physical behaviors based on um, this threat message you were getting. Okay, so three weeks later, your family finally talks you into going out to dinner. You don't like going out to um uh restaurants because all kinds of people are there and you don't know who they are. And but this time they talk you into going out. And you sit with your back to the wall like you always do. And uh, the server comes and passes out the menus and you look look up and the server looks exactly like that offender that you had the interaction with in the dining room. It's not the same person, but it's the same ethnic group, the same age, the same size. Um, uh, I don't has the same hairstyle, same sideburns, glasses, whatever it might happen to be. It, it just triggers for you that event that happened in the dining room. <clears throat> and so, you know, you reach over to your family, you grab all the menus, you say, I told you it wasn't safe here, let's go. We're out of here. Dad, what's going on? Well, it's not safe. What do you mean it's not safe? Well, that guy over there, I don't trust him. Why don't you trust him? Well, he looks like somebody I didn't trust. In other words, that's an example of where vigilance, which is really, really important, um, has has translated to hypervigilance and has damaged, if that's the right word, interrupted your off-duty life. And it's, it, it unless we, I, I don't know, maybe it's just me, Bruce, you can give me feedback on this, but I think it's important for employees to know that that's happening in your brain, and that in fact, the more it happens, you know, this sounds overly dramatic, but still, it's true. The structure of your brain changes. You know, the 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 neurons that fire together wire together, and so the connections are even bigger and stronger um, than than they were before. And so here you are in a setting that where there is no threat, but you have. Your brain has generated threat memories for you, and that changes your whole world.
0: Mm. Oh, um, Greg, I'll give you feedback. <laughs> absolutely, totally, 100% agree. Um, <laughs> it, 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 you know, th- th- these are, are complex reactions that people have to trauma, and we need is counselors as trainers we need to get some understanding of it's really in a way what the whole podcasts are about in in that i i recognize that and this isn't a criticism necessarily but we can't rely on our employer to provide what we need in the mental health space to the nth degree And we really need to get out ourselves if we work in these frontline or counselling or whatever, we work in these frontline occupations, we need to go and find it out ourselves about how our brains work and what happens when you respond to trauma. And so, you know, interviewing people and talking about that the whole aim of it is to give people, well, I didn't know about that. Or I didn't know that that type I, I com- of therapy. I completely,
1: I completely agree with you. And excuse me for interrupting because that that's the next step in that story that I tell sometimes is that at, you're in the dining room and you talk this guy down and he sits down and you finish the meal. What are you supposed to do with that? Are you supposed to yes. call, call your supervisor and say, I almost had a fight in the dining room? Well, did you have a fight in the dining room? No, I didn't have a fight in the dining room. I talked him down. <laughs> so you did your job then, and you're calling me for what reason? You know, so you're right. I mean, they're, they're, the nuances of these events are, are intense. And just because nothing happened that we could see doesn't mean that nothing happened internally. Yes. And again, Tim Peck, make it visible. Make your mental health visible.
0: The, the, the any, um, uh, in terms of the, I know what you do now, you love, and, um, and that, um, you know, seeing people that come through the, um, correction fatigue, um, training, just some comments around the different space you're in now to, to where you used to be.
1: <laughs> well, I feel. <laughs> I feel um, embarrassed and um, chagrined at the uh, negative contributions I made. But, you know, there you go. Live and learn, I guess. But, you know, I, that, that minimizes it. No, I, I I really wish there were many things I had done differently, but I'm just absolutely blessed to have uh, encountered Katarina and Desert Waters and, and, and done that kind of work. You know, a conversation like that. I recounted that captain standing at the the door of the mini mart where he's realizing that he's not on duty, but he is on duty. That's, that's huge. That's life changing. You know, I am mean, mm. will it happen again? Well, it might happen again, but you know, he, er, the more it happens and the more he realizes it, the more he's able to manage it. I mean, that's just, that's just brilliant. And then he's the instructor and he passes that on to, um, uh, to the people that he uh, provides instruction to. Um, The other, the, the, the place that I have most recently, is that the right way to put it, most powerfully uh, landed is the notion of post-traumatic growth and uh, uh, abbreviated PTG. And the, a couple things about that. One is it's not the opposite of post-traumatic stress. It can only... Post traumatic growth can only happen if post traumatic stress has occurred. They coexist. Mm -hmm. Um, The the uh, the stress event or the stress accumulation has to occur first before the before the growth can be recognized. the The second thing is this is this is obviously a um, a relatively new. psychological term, you can tell just by the terminology, post-traumatic growth, but it goes back in human history, centuries, millennia, every, every, um, historical myth and legend of people overcoming some, uh, uh, huge trauma or drama in their life is based on post-traumatic growth. And that I'm, I'm starting to wonder if that, Concept might be our way out, be at least part of our way out of uh, the the consequences of the profession. In other words, what the the easy way, simple way I have asked it in class is: what's better about you as a person as a result of your corrections career? And because of course we spend so much time on the, uh, what's, you know, what's worse. Um, what's better about you. And I literally have had supervisors say, I've never thought to even ask myself that the, um, the post-traumatic growth concept. Um, and again, in training, I would stop here and I'd spell out the authors Tedeschi and Calhoun, T E D E S C H I and Calhoun. Uh, University of North Carolina in uh, the United States identified this concept known as post-traumatic growth, and they identified five different domains that typically people um, mention refer to when they talk about the growth they have experienced after uh, a traumatic uh, traumatic event. I learned new skills. I have a bigger support system than I did before. Uh, I have a bigger a gr- a grander understanding and appreciation of life um, I've tried new projects I would say Bruce, a podcast for you is a is a post-traumatic growth uh, concept yes. perhaps and um, a greater spiritual awareness and so so one of the things that that I am trying to do for myself did just today and, and have done in, in other training classes is ask people, do any of those five jump out at you as something that has grown in you as a result of this profession and the work that you have done? You have new skills that you didn't have before. Well, almost certainly that's going to be the case. Uh, a broader support system. Well, the potential for a broader support system is there but it depends on whether you've taken advantage of it or not, or whether a person's taken advantage of it or not. Um, a broader appreciation, greater appreciation for life. Well, that can get pretty pessimistic. Um, so that might be something to pay attention to. Um, uh, taking on new projects. Um, I used to go to, um, before COVID hit, uh, the, all the retirees at the penitentiary where I worked would have breakfast uh, first Friday of every morning together. And I remember sitting across the table from uh, a sergeant that I'd known. I said, so what are you working on these days? He says, oh, I'm a gardener. You ought to see my garden. I said, what? You know, he worked in industries. He was a, he was a shop supervisor in industries. Um, and, and Yeah. He said, oh, I grow my own herbs. I grow my own vegetables. You ought to see the inside of my house. Man, it looks like a greenhouse inside my house. It's like, Okay, you know, sounds sounds good to me. You taking on something new that you didn't that you didn't know about before, um, and then boldly I'll go into the to the last of the five, the spiritual connection, and and say I'm personally I'm not much of a church kind of guy, but what I have realized this is kind of back to a previous question about, um, how things change for me that pretty much every word I say and or write for desert waters is these days is in the form of a prayer. It's a prayer to the people who do this work, who continue to do the work, um, for their health and their, um, Wellness, their family strength, um, that they are able to come through the profession, um, with a recognition of of the strengths that they have gained from the profession, not just the challenges and consequences that have occurred.
0: No, and, and um, you know I really connect with it, and and it fits in terms of the more that we bring attention to the neuroscience and the impact of trauma and high levels of stress on the brain. Um, which, as you said, is irrefutable. There's no debate now. It's 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 you know it's there. Um, but the more we need to convey that we can one support people through it, and that they they can do things themselves that can put them in a better place to deal with it, and that some that the PTG does come from these experiences. That as difficult as they might be, and as challenging as they might be. You know, we do draw on them and, and you know, and yet we none of that's ever promoted, you know. Um, so, the, you know, you the, look at the, 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 the challenges the, of what to promote, it's the, the, the,
1: the phrase is what the people frequently use is what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Well, that's yeah. not quite true. It's what doesn't kill you can make you stronger, Strong but you have to work at it. There is a struggle that's required. You can't, you can't just assume that it's going to be that way. Uh, give me a couple more beers and life will be great. There, there is a struggle that's built into that that results in that growth. And, you know, again, back to all the – like you said, all the <coughs> – excuse me, Bruce – all the myths and legends throughout human history—none of those happen easily. That's the point. It, t- it it is a struggle to get there, and you have to allow yourself the courage. You have to give yourself the permission to have the courage to take it on. Um, and it, it and because it's struggle, that means it's not easy. And I, I say that um, glibly as if oh gee snap your finger and make it make it happen, but of course it's not that way at all. It's hard. It's very very hard.
0: Mm-hmm. Now I'll, I'll I'll end you. Something you said before triggered a memory for me, and I'll I'll end our our talk with a story for me. Uh, But about, you know, you look back on the old days and where you were intentionally traumatizing your trainees and Mm -hmm. how you would now with the knowledge that you have from your work at at Desert Waters, how you'd like to do it differently. One of my early jobs was with uh, what used to be called the Spastic Society, which is now called SCOPE here in Melbourne. And uh, it was a full-on job. And and one of the things I was involved in, not enough, was a – early intervention program and these young mums would bring in their children that were just so physically and intellectually um, disabled and um, every now and again the physio would come down and say, oh, you know, Mr. So-and-so is in tears and I'd go down and have a, a, you know, a chat or take them to the coffee room or, or whatever. And I looked back some years later and I thought I never once had the idea, why don't I get these mums together? and talk to them about what they're going through. And Mm. and I never thought of that. Never thought of Mm -hmm. it. I just Mm -hmm. when the physio came Mm -hmm. and got me, I'd run down and have a chat to that mum. And and I never thought once, why don't I get these mums together for a morning tea while their Mm -hmm. children are being treated, we could have a coffee or... I never thought of it once. And, you know, and I still, to this day, you know, we're talking 30 years ago, 40 years ago, I still haven't forgiven myself for that. But... You sort of have to in a way. So, you know, we can only learn and uh, and certainly doing these mm-hmm. podcasts, what I've learned mm-hmm. is, which I knew, there's so much to learn and about what we're talking about. And all I'm really asking of people here is just be open to it, Yeah, you know? be open to there's a hell of a lot we don't know. And we need to find it out. Anyway, that's enough for me, and that's enough from you, Greg. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. <laughs> um, S-
1: same, same, Bruce. Same. Bless you. Bless your heart. I mean, it's, um, it's. I don't know. It's it's, it's. it's. A. It's fascinating, and B. It's important. And thank you very, 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 very much.
0: No, it's absolute pleasure and um, you have a good night and we'll have a good day.
1: Good. Okay, good for you. Good <laughs> on you. Rock, Ron. Take, take care, you. Bruce. All right. Bye. Bye.
0: Thank you for joining me on this latest episode of Trauma from the Frontline. If you are enjoying this series, please make sure you follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And if you find this information valuable, we ask that you rate the show five stars. If you would like to get in touch with me, please feel free to email me at bruce at letstalkdifferently.com.au. Until the next episode, please take care. If this episode has raised any issues for you, free counselling is available through your organisation's employee assistance provider, Lifeline on 131 114 or Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636.